0: Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we turn to God's Word together. But Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together, to study the living Word of God. And Lord, we recognize that it is such, this isn't just a collection of writings by men and women. Lord, this isn't just a, a work of fiction. This is the Word of a God who has created all things, who is outside of time and has communicated to us through this book to tell us, Lord, of your great and wonderful plan, and, Lord, all that you are going to do. And, Lord, as we continue to look this morning at the things that are yet ahead of us, Lord, give us understanding, we pray. Lord, help us to look at your word with the respect that it deserves. Lord, teach us, we pray, not just what is going to happen, but, Lord, how these things should impact us right now. And so, Lord, speak to us through your spirit. Lord, take my words and use them for your glory. And Lord, we just give you this time. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, we've come as far as chapter 14 in our journey through the book of Revelation. And I kind of, every time we get to a chapter of Revelation and I start preparing for it, I think, oh, this is, this is probably the best chapter in the book. And I think again, this chapter, there's so much. It's kind of a chapter that's quite easy on the surface just to read through and kind of almost skip through it onto the next bits. But there is so much here and there's so much detail that we can draw out. Just to give us an idea, the the chapters 11 through 14 are parenthetical chapters, so they've kind of been inserted in at that point to give us additional information. They're not necessarily chronological. They occur at the midpoint, typically, of the tribulation or other Various parts. So chapter 11, for example, goes back and looks at the beginning, from the beginning of the tribulation, the seven year period, through to the three and a half year point. Um, And then the other chapters as well cover various points. We'll look at that in a bit more detail in a moment. But chapter 14 is going to give us an overview of some of the key events that are going to occur during the last three and a half years of this tribulation time. Chapter 14 we're going to see is actually divided into six sections. There are six kind of key topics, in a sense, that come through. First of all, we get the redemption of the 144,000. You remember we met these back in chapter 7, 144,000 Jews that seemingly are given this task of going and preaching the gospel during that first three and a half year period. Then we're going to find a strange situation, but an angel we find is introduced who is going to preach the gospel during that last period of time, the last three and a half years. We're going to find for verse 8, we're just in verse 8, just an allusion to the fall of Babylon. We'll talk about it briefly when we get there. And then verse 9 through 11, it's judgment on those who take the mark. If you remember last week in chapter 13, we were looking at the mark of the beast and talked a little bit about that. Well, this chapter gives us the judgment for those who end up taking that mark. Again, it's a mark for buying or selling but typically it's a mark of allegiance to Antichrist. Verses 12 through 13, we're going to see a reference to the tribulation martyrs, those who are saved during this period. And then finally, I've entitled it Prelude to Wrath, verses 14 to 20, uh, which really gives us our introduction into the next couple of chapters where we're going to see the great tribulation uh, laid out for us. Now, the chart there, hopefully, to make things helpful, it's more from, from a study point of view afterwards rather than just to go through this in detail this morning. Um, but I've tried to lay out chronologically how the book fits together. So, of course, we start in chapter 1, that's historical, that's where John receives this vision and gives us the introduction to the book. Chapters 2 and 3 detail the church age. Chapter 4 and 5, they they're moving on, Following the church age, when the church are called up to heaven, we see this as it's refers to in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of Christ, uh, or in the Greek it's the beamer seat of Christ. This is a judgment specifically for the church. That follows on then and we start to see events unfolding on the earth. And in chapter 6 we see the beginning of sorrows, this time period. That goes on through chapters 8 through 10. Then we find chapter 11 kind of resets back to the beginning of the three and a half years and we cover that period again with some more information. And then we find uh, that we've got other information. Chapter 7 is also inserted here, gives us additional information as things that are going on. Uh, then chapter 13, we were looking at last week, is really this kind of midpoint. Chapter 16 takes us right the way through the second part of the, the seven year period, the last three and a half years, and then we'll move off into eternity in a sense. We start with the millennial reign of Christ, and then into the new heavens and the new earth, and so on. So. That's kind of the chronological flow. Uh, in addition to that, as I said, we mentioned chapter 11 already, chapter 14 and 15, well, we're going to look at 14 this morning, and uh, Lord willing, 15 we'll start to cover next week. Uh, and then chapter 12 is an incredible chapter, as we, we looked when we were there. It's really a kind of a, a panorama of history. It starts with the seed of the woman. It starts in the Garden of Eden, effectively. And that really brings us all the way through, to the time that Jesus returns to set up his kingdom and rule on the earth. It's an incredible chapter, one of the the most pivotal chapters in in Scripture in terms of understanding God's plan. And then, chapter 17 and 18 will take us back again to the beginning of the the seven-year period, and we'll again look at other events that will take place during the first three and a half years, and that will be to do with the what is referred to as Babylon. Um, and we'll see this false religious system uh, and the judgment of it. So those are the things, some of the things we're we're looking at. But hopefully that might help you a little bit in understanding how the book is kind of fitted together. Now back in Matthew 24, Jesus made this comment. He said, for then, and this is falling on in his talk of what would happen prior to his return, for then shall be great tribulation, and that's where we get the phrase great tribulation from, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, or should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. I mean, it's easy to read over that and not to take the full import. Jesus is saying that these days are going to be so unlike anything the world has known, that unless God were by his mercy and grace to put a, a time limit and a shorten this time, no flesh would save, no one would make it out alive. He says, but for the elect's sake. Now, when we did our study in Matthew a couple of years ago, you remember we looked at this in detail. And the here are here referencing to the Jews, not the church. A lot of people think this is the church. The church have already been taken by this point. We'll be with the Lord in heaven. Now this is a reference to the Jews, and that phrase is used consistently of the Jews by Matthew. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. That's what Jesus said. It's helpful as we get ready to look into this period of time, we look at some of the other scriptures, just to remind ourselves what the great tribulation really is all about. Isaiah made this comment, he said, prophesying, How ye for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. That's a really key point. Notice that the tribulation is a judgment from God. A lot of people talk about, oh, but the church always has tribulation. Yes, it does. And Jesus said, those that would live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's true. But that persecution, the source of it is not from God. It's from the world. It's from the devil. From the flesh as well. That's the source of the persecution that we have to endure now. But the source of this trouble is from God. And it's coming as a judgment. Verse 7 carries on. Therefore, shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid, and pangs of sorrow shall take hold of them, and they shall be in pain, as a woman that travaileth. That idea is used frequently, to really refer to this time. Speaking of a woman in labour coming to the end of term, about ready to deliver her baby and the pain that's endured at that point. Speaking very much of the pain that will be endured by the world at this point. They shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Now notice, this is God. That he's going to do this. And the reason that the tribulation occurs is to destroy the sinners. It's to deal with those who have rejected Jesus Christ. There is nothing for the church in this. This is why the church is removed prior to this time. Jeremiah makes this comment. Ask now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness. Again, that idea used alas for that day is great so that none is like it it is even the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it a clear reference to Israel Jacob's name was changed to Israel this is a, a reference to what is going to happen to the Jews it's referred to this as the time of Jacob's trouble and we've already seen how Satan through Antichrist will go after the Jews and try and kill them they will be prepared a place will be prepared for them that they will flee to in uh, seemingly Petra, Bosra, and what we refer to as modern-day Jordan. Interestingly enough, some years ago now, but Israel made a peace treaty with Jordan. I mean, all the, the problems in the Middle East, they struggled to get peace treaties, but Israel and Jordan made a peace treaty. And Israel, on more than one occasion, has come to Jordan's aid. And it's interesting that Israel will end up fleeing to that place, and it's one of the, a few places only that Antichrist will not be given control over. We're told that at the end of the book of Daniel. In the book of Amos, we read this, therefore the Lord said, therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, wailing shall be in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandman to mourning, as such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing, and in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, says the Lord. Well unto you that desire the day of the Lord, to what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, how the world is fascinated with these things. We have so many films that are made about the end times and, you know, they'll use typical phrases like Armageddon and, you know, Judgment Day and these kind of ideas. You know, and so many films use these kind of concepts. Well, God says, don't think it's a good thing. Don't think this is something that you want to look forward to. It's a day of darkness, not light. He says, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. I'm just going to throw something in which you need to go and look at in the light of scripture yourself. But there's a number of references to people being cast into outer darkness. Just wonder whether that has a reference to the tribulation. Tribulation. People often think it has some reference to eternal judgment. And it may well do. Be Bereans, go and look at those references and see if you think that there's a link there because I think you'll find that there's a number of times when we find those references to those being cast into outer darkness. It may well be a reference to those that are going go into the tribulation time. Verse 14 of Zephaniah now. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hastens greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This is what's kind of come upon the world. We carry on a day of trumpet and alarm against the fence cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men. They shall walk like blind men. Because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Zechariah chapter 14, the first three verses we read this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, and the spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. There is so much in the Old Testament about these things. And as I said already, the book of Revelation draws so heavily on the things that have already been revealed in God's word. It's just a tying together of everything. Finally, Paul in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 2 says this, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, the people of the world, shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Just the swiftness that all of these things will suddenly come upon the world, and they'll be caught up in it before they realise what's going on. Okay, with that said, let's get into chapter 14 and see what gems are here for us to, to glean this morning. Well, firstly... We read, and John says, "And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood." Now, straight away, John wants us to be aware of this. He's like, look, "Look, and lo, behold! Look, listen, see this—a lamb stood." Now, I just want to talk about this for just for a moment because John clearly wants us to get our, our heads around what's going on here. Matthew Henry makes this comment. He says, "He appears as a lamb, a true lamb, the Lamb of God." A counterfeit lamb is mentioned as rising out of the earth in the last chapter, which was really a dragon. And so we now we see, in contrast to that previous chapter, this false lamb, this false Christ, the the false prophet and antichrist. We now see this lamb standing. And again, it's interesting because no longer is this lamb just sat at the right hand of the Father. It's as if Jesus now got up and getting his battle garments on, getting ready to come back. We're now getting ready for the final judgment before the lamb will return, to claim that which is rightfully his. If you just bear with me, I want to read to you some comments from J. Vernon McGee. He says this, From the days of Abel to those of John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus is depicted as a lamb. The apostle John calls him the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, God did not choose the lamb because it possessed characteristics of Christ. Neither did he choose it for the sacrificial aspect. God created such an animal to represent Christ. Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before any lamb was ever created. The Lord Jesus has the qualities of a lamb. He was meek. He was gentle. He was harmless. You never see a sign saying, beware of the lamb. You see, beware of the dog, but not of the lamb. He was humble. His coming was a doxology. His stay was a blessing. His departure was a benediction. Even the unbelieving world has been fascinated by his life. The lamb sets forth his sacrifice. Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. Genesis 22 verse 8. And God did provide himself a as that lamb. But what about the wrath? Wrath is strange and foreign even to the person of God. It Is is it not God loves the good? God hates the evil. He does not hate as you and I hate. He's not vindictive. God is righteous. God is holy. And he hates that which is contrary to himself. He says that Jehovah is a man of war. He is strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. The gospel reveals the wrath of God. Paul said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. He says, look at this world we are in, my friend. It already reveals the wrath of God, the judgment of God. It is like mixing fire and water to bring wrath and the Lamb together. But all the fury of the wrath of God is revealed in the Lamb. Finally, there is a day coming. When the wrath of the Lamb will be revealed. Somebody says, I thought he was gentle and would not punish sin. My friend, God said, Be wise now therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but the little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. I thought some great comments again by J. Vernon McGee. So, John looks and sees this lamb. It says the lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having their father's name written in their foreheads. I just want to focus on this for a second because we've already seen in the previous chapter the mark of the beast and those that took the mark were taken on their right hand or on their foreheads. And now we find why that was such an offence to God. Because it was reserved for God. God wants to write his name upon our foreheads as he does with these 144,000. But that promise is made not just to them. In Revelation 3, verse 12, we read there, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write upon him my new name. So this is a promise to all believers. Not that we'll take the name of the world or of Antichrist or anything else. We get to take Christ's name. It's a little bit like being adopted into a family. And you get to take the family name that you're adopted into. Well, we have been adopted into God's family and we get to take his name. This name that is given to us. In Revelation 22, when we get there, we'll see this verse, verse 3 and 4. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. We're speaking of the new Jerusalem. And notice what we're told. And they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. This is one of the real issues with the Mark of the Beast. It's not just the fact that it's allegiance to Antichrist, it's actually the fact that it's a rejection of God. Another thing to bring out from this chapter, and this is actually kind of an an area where there's a little bit of uh, disagreement and controversy uh, amongst scholars, because we read, I looked and and lower stood on the Mount Zion. Now, in Scripture, that could refer to any one of two places. It could be earthly Mount Zion, which is the city of David in Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 5, 7 is one of the references for that. Now if that's the case, it means that the things that we're about to look at in these five verses here are speaking of something that will occur when Jesus returns at the second coming. Because if the Lamb is there and they're on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, then Jesus hasn't yet left heaven. So it means that this is looking forward to that time. That's one possibility. The other that is referring to the heavenly Mount Zion. Now, in Hebrews 12, verse 22, we find there that in heaven we also have a Mount Zion. In a sense, it's the the reality of which that which on earth is just the the type or the copy. Now, if that's the case, what it means is that these 144,000 believers, these Jewish believers, must have been raptured and taken to heaven by this point. Now, I believe that as we go on, you'll see from the details that are given... We are looking at the heavenly Mount Zion. I don't think this is a scene that will take place on earth. I think what John is seeing here is something that will take place in heaven. And there's a number of reasons that I'll give you for why that's the side I fall on this particular question. Verse 2 carries on, And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and the voice of a great thunder. I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Well, first question is, who is in the singing this song? I think it's quite clear from the context, if you look at it, that it's 144,000 that are singing this song. It's possible you read this and you, you're introduced to these harpers that are harping with their harps, which is, I guess, what harpers would do. And then he goes on, and they sung, and some people then jump and think, well, it must be the harpers that are singing. But I think it's quite clear, because we're actually told what the harpers are doing. The harpers are harping with their harps, they're not singing. I will to harp on about that, but the, those that are singing are the 144,000, because we're told that no one could learn the song except the 144,000. So I think it's very clear that the song is being sung by... The 144,000. And notice where this voice of many waters, this rapturous sound of praise is coming from. It's coming from heaven. It's another reason why I think that what we see here is the 144,000 have finished their work and ministry. They've completed the work that was assigned them and they've now been taken out of this world before judgment would come. Totally consistent with what God has always done. Always removing the righteous before he brings his judgment. And now these 144,000 are there in heaven. And as they start to praise, could you imagine the noise, the volume of 144,000 men that are singing with just praise and adoration to Jesus? It would sound indeed like a, a voice of many waters. So again, that's another one of the reasons and we'll see some more as well in a moment why I think that's the case. Just another interesting aside here, because if the event were to be taking place on earth, we've got another problem with it, and that is, a lot of these details you can miss if you go on, they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders. Now we've already seen that the elders are representative of the church, very clearly. There's at least nine different reasons from scripture that you can bring to to confirm that. The elders are representative of the church. The believing church that has been raptured and now is before the throne. And these 144,000 now are singing. We First of all, we're told they sing a new song before the throne. So again, they must be in heaven. And before the beasts who we know are in heaven and before the elders who are also in heaven. You see, that won't apply at the time of the second coming. So I don't think this can be applied at that point. So just from a technical point of view, what we're seeing here again is this 144,000 taken from the earth to heaven. And of course, it's consistent with everything else we're seeing in this chapter because all the other events here are really at the midpoint of the tribulation or start at the midpoint and conclude the end of the great tribulation. So it's consistent with everything else that's being revealed now. There's no there's no reason to think that we're suddenly jumping forward to the end of that period. We're we'll then give a little bit of detail about these hundred and forty-four thousand. We're told first of all that these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes, and they were redeemed from among among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. It's interesting again just that they have chosen to give their lives over to following the Lamb. And as a result of that, they've not got married. You know, the world has got this strange notion that when you become a Christian, you have to give up things that you would otherwise want to do or things you'd enjoy. And actually, the Christian life is really one of sacrifice in a sense when you just have to give up things that you'd otherwise want to do. That's not the case at all. The Bible speaks of us being separated unto. It's about the fact that we've been given something so wonderful, the blessings in Christ are just so overwhelming that why would we want what the world has got? Why would we want to indulge in the things the world indulges in? God has given us a framework and a a plan and a map for life. He's told us the way things should be. And of course, the blessed individuals will be those who learn to follow Christ, to do what he would have us do, live our lives according to his word, his rules. You know, the devil has just attacked marriage so much from all angles, from all sides, trying to totally devalue it. And one of the reasons for that, that most of the world are totally oblivious to, is that marriage itself was set up to be a model. Paul tells us in Ephesians that marriage is there to point to Christ and the church. You see, right from before the foundation of the world, God had purpose to have an eternal companion for his son, the bride of Christ and all of God's plan through history has been set about bringing that into reality that he would have this eternal companion and there's a great book called Destined for the Throne by a man called Paul Billinger. and he goes through just looking at the scriptures that just point to this incredible mystery the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament but revealed in the New, the mystery of the church you know we read in Ephesians the mystery of God's will was he would bring all things together in Christ. That was what God's plan was. You know, God has shown his wisdom by the establishment of the church, we're told in scripture. The the angels, the principalities and powers, no doubt looked on and tried to figure out what God was doing. And suddenly we get to the day of Pentecost. And I'm sure there was a lot of angels and principalities and powers at that point that went, "I, I get it. I see what he's doing. You know, the amazing thing is that you and I have been called to be part of that church. What a privilege, what an honour. These individuals have chosen not to indulge in marriage in an earthly sense because they are looking for something better. That union with Christ. Really what marriage itself is really depicting anyway. Anyway. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And notice what we're told, that they're redeemed from among men. Now again, I think that's another indication that they're taken out of the world. They're taken from the earth. They're redeemed from off the earth to be in heaven. They're taken out from the world. And we're also told that they were the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. got to remember who these 144,000 are. They are Jews. This is the first fruits of those of the nation of Israel that would come back to know the Lord as their Saviour. Ultimately, we're going to see that the nation will repent. They will, as we read in the book of Hosea chapter 5, they will cry out for their Messiah. Zechariah 12 tells us they will eventually look upon Jesus, the one they've pierced and mourn. Paul tells us in Romans 9, 10 and 11, this whole incredible saga with the nation of Israel, the way that they had been blinded. But ultimately the eyes will be opened when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And we'll talk about that maybe more next week or the week after. When that actually occurs. Because I believe we can define that point. But these again, the first fruits, the first offerings up to God of the nation of Israel that would return to him. And verse 5 again, In their mouth there was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. I mean what a, a great statement of to be said of them, that they were without fault. I mean, just this is recorded in God's word of these individuals that there is no fault in them. But you know, the same is recorded effectively for us in the book of Jude. It ends, verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Again, this incredible privilege that we have had our sins forgiven. And these individuals counted as faultless because of Christ. Well, then we move on to the next section, the second section out of our uh, five or so, verses 6 through 7. And we see this everlasting gospel proclaimed. Let me just read... The verse, first of all, verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. That phrase, them that dwell on the earth, could be translated, those who have chosen to make the earth their home. As opposed to those who have chosen to put their treasure in heaven. That's the contrast. You either put your treasure in heaven, or you make the earth your home. And look for all the wonderful things, so on, that the earth can give you. Certainly that's the perception of many. And to every nation and kindred and tongue of people. So we've got this this strange picture being painted. And of course the question is, what is this referring to? Can we take it literally? Some have tried to work out what it means, but quite frankly I think what it means is that there's going to be an angel who flies in the heavens, who preaches the everlasting gospel to those that dwell on the earth. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. You know, I know that's not the kind of thing we see every day, but everything that we're going to be seeing at this time is so removed from the m- normality that we're used to. Why is the Lord even going to do this? Well, I think this is another interesting situation. I think another evidence why that 144,000 are now not on earth, but have taken, been taken up to before the throne in heaven. Because I think their role was to preach the gospel. I think they probably get converted through the ministry of the two witnesses. But it comes to the point the Lord says, your job is done. He takes them away. But you see, the Lord would not leave earth without a witness and a testimony. And I think this angel is there for a couple of reasons. I think, firstly, to preach so that everybody gets to hear the gospel. You know, man has been removed at this point. At least the 144,000 in the church are, are, all, are all gone. You see, all those who are saved are out of the way. So God now uses an angel. So there is still testimony. And, you know, how many people have used this objection to say, well, what about the man that lives on the desert island, you know? how How's he going to be saved? How's that just? Well, uh, the problem solved here. Because this angelic being is flying in the midst of heaven, He's preaching unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. You see, there will be nobody going into the great tribulation that will not have heard the gospel. But they have all chosen to reject it. And that's very, very significant. Because, again, the 144,000 job was done, I believe this angel now carries on that work. And I think that's why this angel is given. And this is what, this angel says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. That's incredible. I mean, Again, it's so easy we could just skip over this, but look at what this angel is saying. This is the gospel in a sense that is being preached. And I don't think this is a, a gospel being preached with the intention that people would repent I think it is a gospel being preached so that people are left without excuse. Because we've been preaching a gospel for the last 2,000 years. The world has heard that gospel and most have chosen to reject it. And I don't believe that this angel's job is to try and get people saved. I think very much like Jeremiah's ministry. It was to leave them without excuse. Nobody will be going into the Great Tribulation and suddenly say, well, if only I'd have been told. But again, I think it's interesting to note the nature and the, the, the tone of the, the, the message here. Fear God, give glory to him, because if you remember already, people are starting to fear Antichrist and give glory to Antichrist. And we're told, for the hour of his judgment is come. It's now time. God is going to bring judgment and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Oh, it's an amazing message to be preaching to this world. Because God is the creator of all things and yet this world has largely rejected that thanks to Charles Darwin and Lyle and Hutton and so many others that came along and have given us this despicable theory of evolution. Richard Dawkins stated of religion in an interview on radio 2 some years ago he said religion demands belief in the supernatural interesting Mr Dawkins because I think you'll agree that nothing exploding and becoming everything is not natural well that's how evolution has to start you have to start with something but it came from nothing that's not natural so evolution by his definition is religion Dawkins also said, religion requires belief in things that cannot be verified by science. Okay, Well, spontaneous generation of life can't be verified by science. Formation of DNA can't be verified by science. Transitional forms can't be verified by science. So, once again, evolution is religion, even by Dawkins' own statements. Dawkins said this, The time has come for people of reason to say enough is enough. A religious faith discourages independent thought, is divisive and is dangerous. Well, I totally agree with you on this one, Mr Dawkins, because religion can be very divisive. It can discourage independent thought. Of course, Christianity is a world apart because Christianity is a relationship. It's based upon facts and evidence. You know, the basis of Christianity is not based upon just a belief. It's based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that we have evidence to confirm. Luke writes his gospel and then in the book of Acts makes the comment that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion, after his resurrection, by many infallible proofs. Jesus didn't expect us to just take it on the basis of faith. Of course, what is faith? Faith is basing what you believe on something that you can corroborate. It's not just a blind leap in the dark. Now, evolution, on the other hand, is a blind leap in the dark. You see, Dawkins says that religion discourages independent thought. Well, there's nothing truer that could be said of evolution. One scientist a molecular biologist said this. He says, to be a molecular biologist requires one to hold on to two insanities at all times. One, it would be insane to believe in evolution when you can see the truth for yourself. Two, it would be insane to say you don't believe in evolution Because all the government work, research grants, papers, big college lectures, everything would stop. I'd be out of a job or relegated to the outer fringes where I couldn't earn a decent living. Well, that's a telling statement. That's why evolution has such a stranglehold over academia today. It's because if you take it away, they have nothing else and they wouldn't get their grants, they wouldn't be able to do all the things they do. Dork has also said that that religion is dangerous and that again is so true of evolution because evolution really gave the basis for Hitler to exterminate the Jews, thinking that they're less evolved people. Hitler was without doubt an evolutionist. Just give you a couple of things just to to think on in regard to the whole evolution thing. And by the way, the issue is not evolution versus creation. Anybody starts to try and have that debate with you, immediately stop them. It's not about evolution on one side versus creation on one side, and we've both got our theories and we present the facts and see who comes down on the top. It's not about that. Put creation to one side. Forget that for one second. The issue is science versus evolution. Just take religion out of the equation. Can evolution happen? Forget religion. Forget emotion. If you deal with that one issue, well, everything else sorts itself out. Now, one of the real problems evolutionists have is what I refer to as the information problem. You see, proteins which make up what we are, and nucleotides—even if all of those things and we won't get into that this morning—could be formed by random chance, which they can't. But even if we allow that for a second, they've got an even bigger problem. Now, if you use an analogy of a car, we're not talking about a car that's got a, a problem on a journey or something, or a car that's you know every now and again misfiring or something. we got a problem with a, a car that is stuck in the garage. We can't even get this thing started. That's the way it is with evolution. We can't even begin the process. It's as fundamental as that. And the problem is information. And you need intelligence to produce information. So, let me give you an example. If you take a book, for example. A book consists of ink and pages. and Even if all the ink fell onto the pages. Somebody spilled an inkwell and an ink pod, and the ink went all over the, the page. And it happened to just arrange itself in letters all over the page. I mean, we'd be amazed, wouldn't we? But it's meaningless. Totally meaningless. Even if it arranged itself with the letters and words and everything else, the reason is because you need to know what each letter means for it to make any sense whatsoever. The only reason the letters on a page mean anything to you It's because we have a pre-agreed understanding of what those letters mean and what those words mean. If you look at the shape of a letter and the construct of a word, it means nothing without the information that you already have that tells you what it means. And that's the problem evolutionists have. Because even if they could join all the dots together, you still need a code behind it. You still need some intelligence behind it. Dawkins was actually asked this question. He says, Can you give an example of a genetic mutation? Because that's how they believe evolution came about. How the changes came about. Example of a genetic mutation or evolutionary process that can be seen to increase the information in the genome. Well, it's really funny because his answer was simply um, um, um. there's a video by Creation Science Ministries or Creation Ministries International, sorry, that uh, they interviewed Dawkins. Dawkins didn't know that it was a, a Christian thing, and they were asked, he was asked and he just sat there, and it's about 14 seconds of him sat there, pondering the question, and eventually he asked the cameraman to cut. And then when they restarted the filming, he answered a completely different question. There is no answer. There is no information. There's no mechanism in nature where you can add information by random processes. You need intelligence. Just a couple of other things just to... Uh, Help you understand how absurd evolution is from a mathematical basis. A possibility of less in one in ten to the fifty is considered absurd or miraculous. So that's one chance in ten with fifty zeros after it. So that's the kind of number that you're looking at. All right. If you were to fill the floor this morning with you know ten p pieces, that many, okay, and then you just marked one of them. And then I said, go and pick one. That's your chance of getting that one. That's the idea. Anything less than that, oh, anything greater than that in, in terms of probabilities could have said absurd. So Fred Hall, the British astronomer, calculated the probability of the origin of life being the result of random chance by just looking at the possibility that the basic enzymes of life could have come about by random chance alone. He concluded that it would be approximately one chance in ten with forty thousand zeros after it. A minute ago we looked at a number that was 1 in 10 to the 50. This is 1 in 10 to the 40,000. It's it's, it's just breathtaking. In other words, it couldn't happen. It just, just couldn't happen. By way of comparison, it's been estimated that there's only 1 in 10 to the 80 atoms in our universe. We're dealing with a number one in 10 to the 40,000. The bottom line is evolution is impossible. Hoyle states this, he says, the likelihood of the formation of life from inanimate matter is 10 to the power of 40,000. It's enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. If the beginnings of life were not random, and this is the key, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. Another individual, Harold Moritz at the Yale University in 1968 calculated the chance of life evolving on Earth There's one chance in 10 to the... I'm sure you recognise that number. It's not one we see very often, apart from in uh, our deficits. One chance in 10 with a 100 billion zeros after it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, just purely by mathematical definition alone, evolution is absurd. That's not an emotional comment. That's a mathematical assessment of the theory of evolution. It's absurd. The code in the chromosomes which are inside every cell in our body is more complex and holds more information than all the computer programs ever written by man combined. And we live in a a world where we've got all sorts of devices to store information and computers are incredible now, but Nothing compares with the system of storage that God designed. The information contained in the chromosomes of just one human being, if typed out, would fill enough books to fill the Grand Canyon 40 times over. That's just breathtaking. And yet all that information is stored on less than two tablespoons of DNA. Again, no man-made storage system comes close. From conception till birth, the baby adds 15,000 cells every minute to its body and each cell is more complex than a space shuttle. That's why Laura's tired at the moment. That's going on every minute. Ladies, when you've been pregnant and you felt tired, that's why. Every minute, 15,000 cells are being added to that baby. Each cell more complex than the most complex thing known to man. So what's our response to these things? Well, you can go with Francis Crick, who was one of the two scientists that discovered DNA. He said this, biologists must constantly keep in mind what they see was not designed but evolved. You've got to keep that in your mind, because otherwise if you look at the evidence, you'd never come to that conclusion. Or you can go, as I would prefer, with King David of Israel, because he said this, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knows right well. I just share that with you this morning because I think it's interesting that in these last days as we go into this time of great tribulation an angel is sent with a message proclaiming God as creator to this world. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this in fact very briefly just looking at verse 8 because it talks about the fall of Babylon it says there followed another angel saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now We're going to look at this in detail when we get to chapter 17 and 18, so we're not going to spend time on this this morning. But in a nutshell, after the flood, Satan launched a three-fold attack on the world. There was a physical attack on the descendants of the seed, which ultimately ends up being the nation of Israel. There was a political scheme that we see really come to a fore as we were looking last week in chapter 13, where Satan has manipulated the world governments. And finally, there's a religious deception that began in Babylon and almost all religions could be traced back to Babylon when we get to chapter 17 and 18 we'll look at that in more detail And it's fascinating to see how religions are spread out across the world and yet all of them can be traced back to Babylon so the next section just deals with those who have received the mark of the beast and we read this and the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or his hand the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brings brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Once again, Those that do this will do this willingly and they won't do it because they didn't get chance to hear the gospel because we've just seen at this point everybody would have had opportunity to hear the gospel. But those that take the mark of the beast, those that have a name put on their forehead which again, as we said earlier, was reserved for God, well, they seal their own destiny. The fifth section then, we just look at these tribulation martyrs. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Now this is talking about those now who have come to know the Lord through the preaching of the 144,000, through the ministry of the two witnesses, through maybe even this angel that's been preaching. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours and their works do follow them. It's just a short verse, but really just this comment that they are promised eternal life. And although they have to endure possibly quite horrible deaths under the hand of Antichrist who will set himself, as we saw last time, to persecute the remnant of the saints, those that die at this point, it says their works do follow them. God will keep account of that which they've done and they will be rewarded accordingly. Yes, they will have missed out on so much. They miss out on so many of the blessings that are given to the church. I believe that these are those that we see in chapter 19 who are referred to as the wedding guests. Those who are invited to the wedding. Well, the wedding is between the groom and the bride. We know who the bride is. We know who the groom is. Who are the wedding guests? I believe it's these. Those who came to Christ after the beginning of the tribulation. And then finally, these last few verses. I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. The crown, by the way, is a Stephanus here in Greek. It's the crown worn by a victor. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, and the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. And we've not given huge detail here, but this is terrifying. These, all those verses we looked at at the beginning this morning to speak about this being a day of darkness and not of light and fear and pain, anguish, all those kind of things coming upon men. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. It's an interesting phrase, that, the vine of the earth. Come back to that in just a second. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So notice that this vine of the earth is cast into this Great wine press as it's referred to. And the wine press was trodden without the city and the blood came out of the wine press even to the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. There's lots of ideas and thoughts about what this is all referring to, but ultimately this is God bringing judgment and we'll see a lot more of this as we look in chapter 15 and into particularly chapter 16. But I just want to comment a little bit here about the vine of the earth just in closing. Noah? Left the ark with his three sons to build a new world. God's sovereignty and majesty were, of course, uncontested at that moment in time. But Satan moved once again in an attempt to thwart God's plan of redemption. God had made laid out right at the beginning his plan that the seed of the woman will be the one who will bruise the Satan's head. Or the serpent's head. And so Satan now chooses a man through whom he can work. Very much a foreshadowing of Antichrist. And it happens to be Cush's son, Nimrod. Now Cush was Noah's grandson. Cush, we believe, was the one responsible for building the Tower of Babel. And it's his son, Nimrod, that goes on. We'll talk more in a second. But Satan uses Cush to establish this vine. Notice in John 15 Jesus said I am the true vine and my father is a husbandman. Now most of us get that horticultural analogy that Jesus is using but very few people stop and ask the question why did Jesus say I am the true vine? Surely it means therefore there must be a false vine. Well the word there is genuine as opposed to counterfeit the word in the Greek. Now there are two other vines in scripture both of which profess to lead men to the father. Jesus is the only one, the true and genuine one, who can lead men to the Father. He is the true vine, but there are two other vines that will lead people astray. In Psalm eighty verses eight to fifteen, we haven't got time to go there this morning, but you're welcome to look at these scriptures. We have reference to the vine of Israel. Israel was supposed to be this vine that would lead people to the Lord. And in Revelation forty nine, as we're looking now this morning, we have the vine of the earth. Israel was to be a witness to the nations. They were to testify to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Through that vine, the nations were to come to know and fear the one true God. But Israel, through their disobedience, became a degenerate plant, we're told in Jeremiah. And thus a byword and a proverb. Rather than being a witness, they brought God's name into disrepute among the nations. However, the Jewish religious leaders still thought, even in Jesus' day and even to this day, that they were the only way to God. That's why they hated Jesus so much. Because Jesus was coming saying that he was the way to God. And then we have this Babylonian vine. And this is the epitome of all false religion. It promises a way to spiritual security but leads to destruction. This again in John 15 It's in contrast with those two vines, neither of which can lead anyone to the Father, that Jesus says, I am the genuine vine. Interestingly enough, a vine produces that which is presented to a king. Of course, Jesus does just the same. The Babylonian vine is a source of all false religion, and we'll look at more about this in chapter 17 and 18. It began with Cush, or Cush, rather, the, the founder of Babel, he was also known as Hermes, the son of Ham. Hermes It's a name you have from other mythologies and cultures. Also referred to as the confounder, Jeremiah 50 verse 2. And then we get to this first world government. It was established by Nimrod, whose name was also known as Bar-Cush. You're familiar in scripture where you have a name, Bar-something. It means the son of bar the son of Cush, he becomes known as Bacchus, the Roman god. All these pagan ideas start spreading from these places. Now, I'm not going to go into it now, we'll look at it in chapter 17 and 18, but we have a story, a wonderfully cleverly designed story, propagated by Nimrod's wife, a lady by the name of Semiramis where Nimrod ends up dying, and she's pregnant at the time, and so she says, well, the baby that I'm carrying is now to be Nimrod reincarnated, and so from that point begins the worship of mother and child. Way, way before we, start, we get to Mary, promises a way of spiritual security, and this is spread out into so many religions around the world. But again, as I said earlier, it leads to destruction and the cup of the wrath of God. The penalty for adultery well, we see that recorded for us in Numbers five. It was a stoning. It's interesting to note that at the beginning of the period of tribulation, God sends these great hailstones upon the earth, seemingly in judgment. Again, partly because of all of these things. But we will look in more detail at this. I just wanted to just mention it at this stage. But when we get to those chapters seventeen and eighteen, Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at that in more depth. But Let's bring it to a a close this morning. Let's bow our hearts now. Well, Father, we thank you for this time, for this chapter. Lord, lots of little bits, but Father, so much in here. Just to remind us that you are the true God. The one true God. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And that we can choose all sorts of paths for our lives, but they will only bring despair and pain and sorrow and misery. Whereas, Lord Jesus, you came to bring us life in abundance. Jesus, you are the genuine vine. You can lead, truly lead, to the Father. And Father, we want to be such that have kept ourselves from the things of this world. It's just like the 144,000 who have kept themselves from indulging in the pleasures of this life, that they may obtain something better. Well, Lord, may we put our treasure in heaven. And may, Lord, our foreheads be reserved for your name. Lord, may we not want to take the name of this world to be identified with this world in any way. As your word says, Lord, we're not to love the world or the things in the world. We want to love you. And so, Father, impress these things upon our hearts. Strengthen us, and may we grow in our walk and relationship with you each day, growing in knowledge and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.